I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Alsace is one of the world's unique wine regions. Its uniqueness begins with its soil. A land between two faults. Much of the vineyards sit between the Vosges Fault and the Rhine Fault. The intense geologic activity that happened here about 45 million years ago, which is around the same time the Alps were being thrust upwards several miles in some places, this crust movement that affected much of now Europe exposed all sorts of different soils from different time periods. Staring at a geologic map is sort of like seeing pictures from various different points in Earth's history. The soils in Alsace are a mosaic of different types of soils, each from a different era. The hodgepodge of soil types here has made Alsace a region with a diversity of sub-economies throughout the ages. Forests grow on sandstone, and as a source of wild game, they have helped to drive cuisine in the region. Quarried sandstone was used to build many a cathedral and citadel. Hops and fruits grow nicely on the loose soils, and grapes, of course, find a home in many different soils, such as granite, shale, schist, alluvial fans, and volcanic soils. The wine scene exists within a richly textured cultural landscape, where the synergy of local vegetables, meats, and wines make for exciting cuisine. Now, the multitude of soil types need a multitude of grape varieties suited to them. And so in Alsace, you find that the AOC regulations allow for many different grape varieties. More and more, producers are listing or alluding to the soil types on which their wines are grown. And we're also seeing an increase in red Alsatian Pinot Noir bottlings. Wine has been growing here for over 2,000 years. But Alsatian wines really took off after the devastating Thirty Years' War, which ended in 1648. This war drastically decreased the population, and Swiss families moved in to fill the void, and many started growing wine. Today, a core group of historic winemaking families comes from this resettlement. Keep listening to hear more from one winemaker whose family traces their history back to the Thirty Years' War, and who continues to explore the many facets of Alsatian soil types. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard to source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. (laughs) 
Olivier Humbresh from Alsace on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Wonderful to have you here. So you went to school in Toulouse. Yes, I did. I actually went to a general agronomy and agricultural school. What did you do your thesis on? I tried. I couldn't get all the answers, unfortunately. I tried to find out how the soil influences on the aromatics of the wine. For me, good wine means not just technical quality. It also means character, personality. And for that, there's nothing more than the soil and the area where it's growing in that can give that to the wine. So understanding how it works and all that can probably just help us to make more interesting wine later on. Still today, there are people who say, well, grape variety and climate is the most important thing and in the taste of wine. Yes, of course, it's normal. The Cabernet and Chardonnay don't taste the same way. It's like saying beef and lamb don't taste the same way. For me, it's very basic things. But then in 30 years ago, when I did this study, there was not that much done about it. So it was like a general uh, study trying to find out things like the mineral analysis of the soil, how you find minerals in the leaves and in the stems, how you can influence the taste of the wine, the water regime in the soil. At the time, probably water was one of the most important elements analyzed. In Bordeaux, they associate the quality of the vineyards to how the water reacts in the soil and uh, are the roots touching or not the water table and all that. So there was a lot lot of different... It was like opening a Pandora's box and, and, and unleashing all sorts of different ideas. Some were probably more uh, important than others, but it was a, a very uh, broad span study. And you work with some limestone sites today as well as some others. Did you ever make it to Burgundy? Yes, of course. Did you meet anybody who was key in your early career when you were in the cellars in Burgundy? You're probably going to think I'm going to be name-dropping. And I'm really not like that. But as I was a student back in 1986, I was actually sharing the flat I was studying with in Toulouse with another grower in Burgundy, Nicolas Rossignol, from Domaine Louis Trappé at the time. And now it's Domaine Rossignol Trappé in Rivre Chambertin. And one day I was traveling to Burgundy. I heard of that grower. I've, I've never tried his wines or anything before. And then you, he worked, uh, he made fantastic wines. And uh, one day, out of the blue, I called him and I said, listen, I'm traveling to Burgundy. I'm alone. I'm a student. I was 23 years old. And I said, can I come and taste the wines with you? And he said, yes, of course. Uh, it's fine. Come that morning. And I had the chance to spend four hours tasting all the wine in the cellar from the 85 vintage in cask and 84, 83 in the bottle from Mr. Henri Jaillet, and uh, we even exchanged wine and all that. You know, I've never met him, and now he's dead. What was he like at the time? Extremely kind, very open. He almost asked me as much question as I asked him, which can probably you can imagine the kind of conversation we had. He was extremely generous, and he really taught me a lesson right on from the beginning that I mean, you can be a star, but you can still be welcoming to people you don't know, especially young guys that haven't, haven't done yet anything. <laughs> so, no, it was a, a lesson of humility for me, which is rare sometimes in the wine business, you know, and also a tremendous influence. He was a person who was, at the same time, very, very discreet, very humble in the way he worked and not hiding anything. You'd ask him a question, he would just answer it very simply and tell you what he was doing. He wasn't trying to hide a secret or, you know, trying to protect a, a special way to make wine. No, he was very open about it. I think, you know, I always say there's different ways to cook a chicken and there's multiple results you can obtain and all of them can be very interesting, whether you grill it, boil it, bake it. Um, so for me, what's important is how you understand your vineyard and you think the wine should be, and you put all your heart into it, whether you distem or not in Burgundy doesn't really matter. I, I, I love the wine from DRC. I love the wine from Dujac. I love the wine from uh, Henri Jaillet. I love the Dumonti, which is full stem. There, there are many, many uh, wine growers that work completely differently. But at the end, they believe into what they're doing. They put literally their guts and, and heart into what they're doing, and the result is great. And it's not really the technique that 
can explain the success of the wine. It's more the determination of the people and how they really want desperately to make something fantastic. You know, one of the things I think about for J.A. is how much time he spent with the press, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of refining the press cycle and making sure that what was coming out was what he was looking for and when to stop. And I, talking to you in the past, I've noticed that you do a lot of work with the press. It's true. In yeah. terms of your whites. And I was just curious if you'd had any conversation yeah. with them at the time. No, no. I was probably too young and uh, too inexperienced and probably a little bit intimidated, you know. Can you imagine uh, you're 23 years old, alone, uh, visiting a, a person like that? So I was just happy to be with him and asking probably a lot of stupid questions at the time. But uh, for me, it was more to appreciate uh, the globality of his work. Um, but it's true, in 86 was the year we actually changed completely our also pressing system. But it's that, on that specific subject, I was more speaking about vineyard work actually and i think and that's what i i have experienced a lot many times when wine growers speak together and they're really passionate they speak much more about the vineyard than about press tanks or things like that you know at the end it's the vineyard that matters you know yeah but true today i would have probably talked to him a bit more than that because having had made a few vintages and also played with uh, uh, machines like press, which I think, especially for white wine, even more than red, it's probably the most one of the most determining actions you can take in making wines. Yeah. Did it give you any secrets about Croparin too that I wouldn't know already? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Just curious. I had to ask you. No. <laughs> so after school, you made your way to London. True. I went to London uh, at the time. Military service was compulsory in France. But you had the possibility, instead of going to the army, uh, walking around with a gun on your shoulder for a year, you could replace that by uh, doing something for the French country. And that was working for an organization called Sopexa, Food and Wine from France, promoting French produce. And you started taking some WSET courses. Yes, that was really the big cherry on top of the small cake. I had some uh, friends in London at the time and... One was Liz Berry. She's a master of wine. And at the time, she had a wonderful wine shop in London on Old Brompton Road called uh, La Vigneron. And sister shop called L'Alsacienne, because she really specialized in wines from Alsace. That's why I knew her. And she told me that uh, that year, in 1987, the institute is opening the doors to non-resident British people. And that maybe uh, would be interested to, to join in the program. So, of course, you had to pass the initial test, tastings, essay writing, and all that, which was a little bit less complicated than it is today, I have to admit. And I passed, and being the only French amongst all the group, I can tell you that you, know, you would be often the subject of a few jokes from all the other English people. Uh, luckily, there was, from Australia, uh, Michael Hill Smith, I was also there, so I was not the only non-English person in the room, and so my my pride took a little bit some hits, you know, from time to time. So it became a game for me. Uh, I had no intention to pass the exam. It was just for me first an, an, an absolute fantastic way to meet some of the wine legends at the time, you know, talking to Genesis Robinson, Michael Broadband, and guys like that getting the opportunity to take many, many wines from around the world, which in France, already today, it's not that easy. But then, 30 years ago, you know, besides some Spanish and Italian wines in small quantity, you would never find uh, anything else in France. And it, it was a bit of a game, you know. I, I tried to do well. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I failed the first year when I was uh, in London. Probably I lacked some kind of international on-the-field experience. So when I finished my time with Sopexa early uh, 89, I took three months uh, sabbatical and I took a round-the-world ticket and traveled to many, many countries I didn't visit properly uh, before, which helped me a lot to get more of the on-the-field uh, knowledge. Who were some of the people you came especially close to during your time in London in terms of some of those characters of the London wine trade and the London wine writers? A couple that... They used to be known at the Papercliff for Serena Sutcliffe and David Papercon, which I, I had the pleasure to meet at the time. And I, I still see from time to time nowadays. What did you learn from them? 
or a certain class of dealing with wine and understanding wine that probably you would not get in rural France or in any rural uh, agricultural areas. Understanding on wines from a higher level and an open book of knowledge, always ready to share, extremely kind people, humble attitude. They knew everything about wine at a time when not many people knew about wine. And they could be like a child uh, finding a new wine. They didn't know about it and be all enthusiastic by something that was not necessarily uh, a Grand Cru or, or, or something like that. So you made your way back to Alsace and your dad had founded the estate in 59. Yes. So what had he been up to between 59 and the late 80s? What, what were his <laughs> projects? To grow from like slightly over four hectares of vineyard, associating the little holdings of the Vin and the Humbrecht together, to almost about uh, 30, 35 hectares of vineyard. My father, I describe him as an absolute fanatical vineyard collector. He researched a lot. He read a lot on Alsace, on old books, history books, going back really a long time ago. And his idea, and I'm sure it's true in any region of the world, if you have a vineyard which has been spoken about for you know, hundreds of years, going through the history, with sometimes you know, good and bad periods, with sometimes good and bad winemakers taking care of it, but still the vineyardness who survived for hundreds of years, that place probably is special. So he was targeting all these places and went to buy vineyard in, in, in areas where people would laugh at, at the beginning. And the best example I, I can say is the, the vineyard of the Rangen in Tan, the co almost completely abandoned uh, after Second World War, but because it was one of the most spoken about vineyards in the 17th, 16th, 15th, and going back to the 12th century, he thought that place must be special. And he had that sense of the place, that vision, you know, looked at the place and say, that's a great place. So he acquired a lot of places uh, like that. Another one, for example, like the Claude Jepsel we have in Turkheim, it took him 20 years to buy every single part of it. It was six different owners. And before we were able to plant it in 1983, you see. So patience, determination, and that kind of uh, vision. So he is the one who really made the estate grow up, you know. Of course, not looking at how to pay for it, how to finance it, how, where to make the wine. So it was a bit like um, uh, going too fast sometimes, you know. Okay, I've got X hectares more of vineyard this year. Where am I going to make the wine now? Where am I going to store the bottles, you know? Where am I going to sell it? So uh, luckily, he was also a guy who loved to travel around the world, picked up a lot of ideas from the most, you know, crazy places. And so the winery changed uh, quite a lot in the 70s and 80s. It's basically my father who was the first one, I'm sure in Alsace, I'm probably sure in France, maybe in the world, that uh, started to uh, use temperature control in all traditional oak casks, you know. Before he picked up the idea from a trip in Australia when he saw a temperature control system in Stanley Steel Tank. And he said, I need that on my wines. I don't want my wines to cook up some years and, and warm up to crazy temperatures, you know. So he designed himself with the help of a few plumbers and things in the area a system to cool down uh, the cask. Of course, it was very manual, nothing was automated, with no computer uh, taking care of all that. So, and the system has evolved since then quite a lot. We have today like maybe the fourth or fifth generation of equipment you, you have in that. But he, he was the first one uh, having temperature control in Alsace, uh, at least in oak barrels in 1981. We went together, uh, either were student in 1986, we drove to Switzerland with our own truck to pick up number two Boucher press with total opening to do the first whole cluster pressing in Alsace in 1986. At the time, Boucher was not even French yet. Later on, they acquired uh, CMMC, which is the Vasselin Press Group. So today, all the Boucher presses are made in France. But at the time, they were still uh, Swiss. And I still have the press in the winery with all the Swiss clocks and all that. And that's a technique that's become more and more popular with some of the key growers in Alsace. And yeah, first is today compulsory for sparkling wine in Alsace. You have to press whole cluster. 
So since many growers are making Cremant, most growers are equipped to press whole cluster. If they don't do it for the whole production, it's only a question of capacity and time. When you load the press with um, uncrushed or undestemmed clusters, you put much less into it, basically half or a third only. So it means that if you're pressing whole cluster, you crop. And if you want to have the same capacity of pressing every day, you literally have to multiply by two, three, or four your pressing capacity. And you know how much a press costs. It's not cheap for something you only use a couple of weeks a year. But it makes sense that another big project for him was lowering yields, would also yes, yeah, be open yeah. to that kind of press. Yeah. I call it the lobster bisque syndrome. It means in the lobster, everything is good to eat, done to the shell where you even make a soup with it. You know, you, you don't want to throw anything away. For me, a good quality grape coming from a great vineyard and you have no problem in it, like disease or, or, or rot or something like that, everything is good to take. And the best part is actually the skin. And for white wines, unlike red, the technical development that happened in the 50s and 60s was to optimize the speed at which you extract the juice and not the quality. So with speed, you extract a lot of elements which are not that interesting. You know, green fennels, you get the juice more and more dirty. But that's not the problem. Whoever sold you the press to work quicker is also ready to sell you a centrifuge machine or a lease filter or something like that. Now it's good business, you know. Ultimately, I studied this extensively in the late 80s and early 90s and can prove someone it's worth having three or four times more press. You still make big savings on the long term because you save a lot of equipment later on in the cellar. A centrifuge, uh, a lease filter and all that are not cheap. If you have to buy enzyme to clarify wine, that's not cheap either. It's per liter, it has a, a significant cost. And also, uh, when you press whole cluster and you take your time to do it, uh, not just two or three hours, but at least six, eight, ten hours or more, you have a much better extraction, which means you also extract more juice at the end. It's not a lot, but if every press you get 50 liters juice more, multiply by the amount of presses you can do in a harvest, and you do that on 10 years or more, uh, these presses have a lifespan of dozens of years, it, the press is being paid on the long term. So in the 80s, the family winery was in Witzenheim. Yes, yeah, that was the location of the wine of the Zint family. And uh, in 59, uh, my parents were located on the outskirts of the village, the village being very close to Colmar. It grew up in size uh, dramatically. And in 30 years from being on the outskirts, the winery ended up in the downtown of the village. So with all the problems you can have being in a downtown, so limited uh, space, parking, access, trucks, you know, you want to add a bit to your cellar, it's complicated, noise. You know, you not believe, but people would scream if you leave some earth on the ground or something like that. They, the neighbor would look like uh, earth as dirt, you know, and not just what it is, the, a residue of an agricultural activity, which is not dirty at all. So eventually, we, the best solution was to try to move out. We had a, a great opportunity to buy a piece of land in the middle of a vineyard and that piece of land had some uh, old uh, houses and barns and things like that. They were half broken down. So we were allowed to build a new winery on the place where you had these old uh, uh, buildings. And today I can only uh, be happy for that because we, our neighbors are vineyards. We have space. Uh, we were also able to design the building to fit the way we work Unfortunately, very, very often, old buildings are beautiful to look at, you know, old stones, old beams and all that. But um, since some of the production techniques have changed, uh, working by gravity, for example, and all that, when you design a new winery, you design the winery according to how you want to work and not the opposite. In an old building, you adapt the way you work to the building, and that's not the proper way to do it. Considering the wine can spend sometimes uh, uh, one and a half, two, three years in the cellar, and the wine is only pumped twice in its entire life, and that includes, you know, uh, anything from the press to the bottling, uh, I think it's it's not uh, a bad thing. So when your dad purchased a vineyard like the Rangan and he had to revitalize it, what was that process like? I mean, 
What well, we, we were very lucky and we saved quite a few years because where we have the vineyards today, about uh, it's five and a half hectare, close to Urban. And at the time, a little bit over three hectares were already planted. A university teacher from Strasbourg called Mr. Jung owned the land there. And he was cultivating those vines from his home in Strasbourg down to Tan. And at the time, it was probably a good hour and a half, if not two hours drive alone. Um, you can imagine the amount of work that was for him. Today, for five and a half hectares, we have five full-time staff just for the vineyard work, and sometimes we have to help to finish some jobs. So being alone, only working on the Saturday or Sunday, you can imagine how the vineyard looked like. Literally, everything was late. Posts were falling down, wires were not replaced, the pruning was done very badly. But being, how can you say that, erudite, or having done his homework, you know, he planted a great uh, material, Great Marcel selection, both in Riesling, Pinot Gris, and Gewurz. Good quality rootstock. And something that was completely unusual at the time, 10,000 vines per hectare. That was unheard of at the time. So when we got the vineyard, yes, we had a lot of work in repairing the walls, in changing the posts, repruning the vines to a good shape. You know, all these kind of things. But for me, that is only kind of cosmetic work. The, the ground work, the base has been done properly. So we were able to start in 1978 with already 15, 20 years old vines that had great potential. We were unlucky in the beginning because 78 was a really tough year, very, very late. And the vineyard didn't reach yet the complete, you know, uh, uh, was not completely refurbished, if I can say that. 1979, 100% uh, hail, no crop at all. 1980, very, very tough vintage. The flowering was in middle of July, you know, uh, so very late. But still, I remember 1980 because I was helping my father during the harvest, and uh, we were kind of shocked to see that the ripest grape of 80 was at Vineyard, and that was quite eye-opening, you know. 81 was the first really interesting vineyard we made in the Rhineland, so four years later after we acquired it. 82 was very nice, but um, large crop, so a little bit of dilution. And 83 was the really first superlative, top quality uh, vintage. And that put the wine into right away into stratospheric uh, uh, consideration among the critics uh, at the time. So was the reason that it wasn't uh, well-known the fact that it was further south than some of the other crews of Alsace? Well, that, that makes me go back to the history of the vineyard in Alsace, if you don't mind. Oh, please. Yeah. Um, well, uh, then I'll start right from the beginning. The village of Tan was ranked imperial city in 1161 because in 1161, Tan reached the population of 1,000 people. At the time, Alsace was part of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, depending from the Habsburg, and that was the criteria to determine if a place was a city. Before that, we don't exactly know the exact date when the first house was built there, but the, the legend says that an archbishop from uh, Rome sent to Germania to uh, bring Catholic uh, religion to this part of the world, did a stopover in the valley of what is today Tan and camp over there. And the following morning, as he left the, the place of the camp, he took out his walking stick out of the ground and water came out of it. And all the people that were there with him declared that this was a miracle. And in those days, miracles were taken very, very importantly. And at the same time as this happened, there was a storm and three big pine trees took fire next to the place. The landlord of the castle that was just above the valley, it was a castle called the Engelbrook, which you still see the ruins today. It's that little funny donut-shaped dungeon lying on this side behind the Rangan uh, vineyard. He came down when they see the fire and declared also the same thing from now on every day in june the longest day of the year uh, 24th of june 
we're going to cremate three big pine trees. And this pagan tradition still exists today. When you go to Tan, uh, end of June, they, they burn the three huge, massive uh, trees in the middle of the, of the village. Anyway, the, the fact that this place was declared holy by this uh, bishop made the Franciscan monk come in the valley. They built a monastery. Eventually, later, they built one of the most beautiful flamboyant Gothic uh, cathedral you can find in the world, which is the cathedral in Tan. And by the 12th century, Tan was one of the biggest pilgrimage places in this part of Europe, mostly draining people from Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Northern uh, Europe, probably using the Rhine River to come to uh, Alsace. At the time, the wine of uh, Tan and the Rangen started to be exported all over uh, this part of the, the world. By the 17th century, Tan had over 500 hectares of vineyard, including the 20 hectares of the Rangen uh, vineyard. Unfortunately, after the 18th century, things went down, starting with different kinds of disease, you know, phylloxera, oidium, mildew, and also a huge change in revenue for the growers. It was the beginning of the industrialization. And these valleys, having a river, were prized by factories to develop textile and things like that, to use the water as a source of energy. And the revenue from vineyards went down. So, unfortunately, a lot of growers sold their land for housing development and factories and things like that, and went to work to factories and stopped making wine. So from uh, 500 hectares of vineyard in the 18th century, uh, Tan went down to basically only the Rangen during a Second World War. Fortunately, the Rangen is a very steep vineyard. We're talking almost 100% uh, slope. We can't build anything on it. And also, uh, Rangen was always the pride of the, the nobility, the aristocrats of the village of Tan. And uh, you would only be considered as an important person in the village if you own a piece of that vineyard. To tell you how much it was uh, respected in the 16th, 17th century, Tan had its own wine militia. These were people who, like kind of private soldiers or army, would patrol the vineyard the whole year long and had the right, the power of death or life on people caught, you know, stealing grapes or doing something to, to vineyard. You'd be caught stealing grapes in the vineyard, these people would be allowed to kill you. A bit like a military service, they would do two years living together in a little cabin called the Cabane des Bongars. It means the Bongar is the guardian of the area, Le Bon. And only the sons of uh, aristocrats and nobles from Tan were allowed to do this. They would live in this little cabin for two years, four at a time together. And when they left their time, they would left a crest on the wall with their coat of arms or something like that, sometimes symbolizing also what was their real work, if they were, you know, uh, an ironsmith or a butcher or something like that. This cabin still exists. You can visit it and you can see all these stones that dates, you know, 15-something, uh, 16-something, 17-something. Unfortunately, all this attitude and respect has disappeared. Luckily for some people who did some uh, research and also understood where the Rangan was, there was always three, four, five hectares planted there in the 40s, 50s, 60s. The vineyard got... Uh, pretty much severely damaged First World War and then Second World War. It was right on the, you know, the front. And lots of uh, people were probably killed around there. And, you know, it was, uh, you still see remains of bunkers and things like that, uh, not far from it. So by 1945, there was maybe only five hectares planted in the Rangun out of the 20 potential. I have to say uh, to my father, uh, him going there and putting the Rangan back on the map as of the mid-80s, I would say, attracted then other interest. And today the entire vineyard is uh, planted. And I think we can say that it has reached back its glory that it had once in the past. And what's the soil type of the Rangan? 
It's unique in Arvas. It's, uh, to make it simple, a compacted volcanic ash. At the time, Arvas was still under the sea. We're talking like uh, three, four million years old. Uh, the sea covered uh, the region, explaining all the different kind of limestone formation, calcareous formation we have in Arvas. There was also some underwater volcanic activity that produced um, ashes and the um, dust, volcanic dust, that got sedimented under the sea. And as the valley floor got created and the sea receded, it got compacted into our, in a relatively hard rock that kind is a kind of in between basalt and slate, very dark in color, a very chunky piece of rocks that have the possibility to actually rot and produce very interesting finer elements like uh, clay and uh, very rich in minerals. It's a very, very interesting soil type that definitely gives huge character uh, to the wine. So you have three different grape varieties there, Pinot Gris, Gewurz, and Riesling, mostly Pinot Gris and Riesling. And in some of those cases, you make it with Botrytis and without. So like you make the Pinot Gris with Botrytis and with no Botrytis. So through those different lenses, what do you think the terroir of the Rangan shows? Riesling is probably mostly made from healthy grapes. And Pinot Gris and Gewurztraminer mostly have a certain impact of botrytis. The Rangan is also one of the highest vineyards in altitude in Alsace because as you go south of Alsace, you go nearer to the source of the Rhine River, which means you go up in elevation. And the bottom part of the Rangan is roughly 1,000 feet elevation, much higher than vineyards around Colmar, for example. And the top part of the Rangan goes to like uh, 15, 16. 1,700 feet elevation. So you have a, a bit more of a mountain climate over there. The vineyard itself is very close to higher mountains also. So you have a kind of, a, you know, cooler climate, more uh, wind influencing uh, the vineyard, wind coming down from the higher summits in the Vosges. And there is also uh, a river, a consequent river, right on the bottom of the, the vineyard. The river is not very, very deep. You can sometimes cross it by foot, but it's probably about 50 yards wide or sometimes uh, more in some places. And that generates that humidity, the fogs, which you sometimes need to, for the development of uh, noble rot. If the Riesling has less noble rot, it's because the Riesling is a really tough grape, hard skin. So it takes some time uh, to get noble rot on Riesling. And enough time so we can decide whether we want the grapes to be dry or sweet, you see. Since I think Alsace has a fantastic potential to produce drier style Riesling, I would more favor a harvest of, of course, physiologically ripe grapes, but before that to get too much botrytis. There are some vintages, to my mind, would come 2006, 2098, 94, where it was almost unavoidable to have botrytis developing into Riesling. And then you might find a slightly sweeter style of Riesling in the Rangan. Any other vintage, usually harvested, pretty healthy, with the potential to make drier style wine. Pinot Gris is a very fragile uh, skin, you know. So Pinot Gris will develop botrytis much faster and much earlier. It's also a grape variety that ripens physiologically much quicker than Riesling. So in that kind of environment and climate, it's not rare to have a noble rot on, a, on Pinot Gris. Even if we make a dry style of Pinot Gris, you can be sure you, there is always a few percent of noble rot uh, there. Whether we let the grapes go to the full extent of Le Harvest and Grenoble depends actually more on the weather forecast, so we don't want rain, and also on the acidity potential of the, of the vintage. If we have a vintage with low acid, it's normal that we don't try to get too much ripeness. That happened, for example, in 2011. But if you have a vintage with a huge uh, acidity potential, and if the weather permits it, then we are not as in a hurry to harvest the grape and very happy to see some noble rot developing, like 2010, for example. Gewurztraminer being a late ripening grape that needs a certain richness, and also the vineyard of Gewurztraminer is planted right above the river, River is called Tür in Tan. The Gewürztraminer is most of the time a relatively rich and sweet uh, wine. Yeah. 
And one of the things you've told me before is that botrytis isn't really one thing. There's several kinds, and it also depends on the speed in which it develops. Well, it's a mushroom, and it's like saying you only have one type of mushroom growing in a forest, you know, uh, which is not true. Even when you have a species of mushroom that you, you know very well, I don't know, uh, truffles, even in the truffle family, you might find a lot of uh, uh, different species and kind. And I've read many articles, uh, very serious, uh, stating that the different type of botrytis cinerea might change from vintage to vintage, from area to area, even from sometimes changing from one soil to the other, one grape to another, you have different um, type of botrytis. In one given vintage, you have botrytis from different color. Some of it can be blue, some can be green, some can be white, some might have no color. Uh, saying that, if I see white, green, or blue botrytis, most of the time it's not a good one. It's more like mold, but it's of the same family. And despite the presence of botrytis, if you asked me before, how do I see it on the taste and influence of the wine and the, the, the terroir, the, the origin, for me, botrytis does change a few things in the wine. It is true. It induces a love enzymatic reaction in the grape, concentrates the acidity and the sugar also, but the acidity uh, more importantly. It leaves a lot of aromatic precursors also in the grape. So it does change a lot the style of the wine. But at the end, it only concentrates what's in the grape. So if you have, uh, at the beginning, a big uh, vineyard character potential in your grapes, you'll find it in any botrytis wine. On the other hand, if your grapes, while healthy, are diluted, you have too much yield, uh, they're not completely ripe yet, physiologically, I mean, Development of botrytis will just bring more botrytis uh, flavor and will not concentrate the terroir because the terroir is already not there in the grapes to start with. And it sounds like you'd prefer to have botrytis in some wines but not others. Specifically, if the wine is going to be more dry, you'd prefer to have less botrytis or no botrytis. Yes, for different reasons. First... I would think it, it depends mostly on the ability of the vineyard and also sometimes the grape variety to allow good quality botrytis to develop. We know that in some vineyards, it's always catastrophic. In other ones, it's always good. In some vineyards, it might be good one vintage, but bad the other. One of the key for me is uh, the acidity potential. When you are in some vineyard with you know, deep soil, lots of clay, marl above the mother rock, soil that tends to stay slightly cooler, keeping more acid into the wine, that's probably a better candidates for me for botrytis development than soil that usually make more varietal-orientated wine uh, with less acidity and uh, less structure. Allowing too much botrytis to develop on a weak wine or in a weak terroir is like putting a ferry engine in a bad car. There's no point of too much power if the, the rest of the vineyard is not capable to handle that power. So we did a vertical of the, you were nice enough to share with me, a vertical of the Pinot Gris from Rangan, or one of the Pinot Gris from Rangan that you make. One of the signatures that I picked up repeatedly was a, a saffron character. And I was wondering, was that, do you think a grape variety signature, a botrytis signature, or do you think that that is the site? Saffron, or maybe more generally speaking, uh, spicy notes, is probably more a uh, character of the vineyard. Um, yesterday, someone said when he was tasting the, the Riesling Rangon 14, it reminds it of the gingerbread. So I'm not too specialist in determining the flavor of uh, different things, and I'm being very modest. Uh, one day I got put back into my place, and rightly so, when I, I, I one day said uh, this Gewurztraminer has, uh, you know, aromatics of uh, lychee fruit, which, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would agree with that. Many Gewurztraminer has this, but there was this person in the room uh, from Asia, and very seriously, and not trying to trick me at all, started to name to me like a dozen different kind of lychee fruit coming from all over Asia, saying, but which one are you referring to? It's a little bit like if you, if you say to someone, um, um, it smells like apples, yeah, but which one eventually? You know, they know, all the apples don't have really the same taste and, and character. 
So by saffron, uh, yeah, I would put it more into a general uh, uh, spicy note, um, uh, probably, which is one of the character of the vineyard with the, that flinty, smoky uh, character uh, you do get. So the Rangan's a volcanic site, but you also work with sites that have limestone bases yes. like yeah. Hangst and Goldert. And what's it like working those sites opposed to something like the Rangan? I mean, how are they different? When you work? There are 13 major salt types, different salt types in Alsace. But within each family, again, you can have multiple small changes. It's fascinating, but complicated at the same time because... At some moment of the year, you do certain things in one vineyard, but not in the other. A special tool to plow the vineyard might work very well in granite, but will might not work in a soil that has more clay, which is heavier, wetter. The slope of the Rangan creates a tremendous complication. Uh, you can't use any tractors, any machine. Even horses or donkeys don't climb up the, the Rangan. It's too steep. So the Rangan, we have very specific tools, all working with a winch, light. Um, you know, I am quite desperate because today uh, cars are getting lighter and lighter. People build engines made of aluminium. You can have car bodies in Formula One, which, which are made of carbon and things like this. Today, you have uh, competition bikes that weigh just a couple of kilograms. Uh, a child can carry them on their back. But when you want to buy a plow, it's still big steel, uh, inches thick, and they wear uh, not a ton, but most of the time they're too heavy. I'm looking for the day people start to use carbon and aluminium and to build solid machines, really solid, resistant, but also light. Because <laughs> uh, weight is always a problem, uh, even on the flatland, because if it's too heavy, you compact more the soil. And you end up with some uh, problems. So Rangonia is, is a very specific vineyard. Spraying is done by hand and all that. So anything we use to work the vineyard for the Rangon is at the farm over there and is only specifically used for there. If you compare now something very different, like let's say Brand and Hengst, two Grand Cru, not far from each other between Turkham and Windenheim, maybe just a mile or two apart, Hengst is young limestone covered with one or two feet of marl on top of it. It's a kind of soil when it rains, you don't want to walk into it. You don't want to drive in it with anything. You will end up with mud everywhere. The earth will stick everywhere and you'll do major compaction problem. The brand, on the other hand, you can work in it even when it rains. It's so well drained, there's so little clay on the surface. The sandy soil, the granitic sandy soil, dry that so quickly that you can use a completely different machine. Basically, you would use something much less powerful in the brand versus the hangs because the soil is lighter. And also in the brand, one of the major problems would be erosion. The soil being so light with a slope, if you work with certain tools that makes the structure too fine, like rotating instruments, for example, you end up with a topsoil that looks like fine sand, and the first big storm you have, all the ground goes down. It's a complicated vineyard to work because you could think, okay, let the grass and plants grow, so they will keep the soil into place. Well, it doesn't work like that because the brand is also in a very dry area, and granite is very poor. So if we allow too much cover crops to grow, it'll cause too much competition to the vine. So you have to find very specific cultivating tools that just barely touch the ground, leave the ground in a more kind of rough structure. You don't want to make it too fine because you want to destroy, at least in springtime, all the plants growing to avoid too much competition. But you don't want to hack too much into the soil and make it too fine in case you have a, a big storm and lose a low earth. On the hangs, it's different. You can use much finer tools and also allow the grass to grow much more because the soil being richer, the vine has absolutely no problem with whatsoever competition it can get. So the, the plowing tool, the cultivating tool have between the two vineyards are completely different. Just one example. There's many others like that. 
And it's interesting to see how many times you have vineyards that are really abutting or adjacent other vineyards that you work. So you have a series of what have just maybe by coincidence been referred to as clothes. And a lot of times they are a continuation of another vineyard that you work, like Jebsal. And, uh, yeah, Jebsal is an excellent example. Jebsal is touching the brand on its upper and western limit. Uh, you don't need to be a geologist to see the difference between rich gray marl with uh, gypsum inclusion, which is a, like a white rock, with the sand of the granite uh, just across the, the little path. It's really uh, day and night between the two. Then when you walk on the upper limit, but more north side of the Yepsal, you got another geological fault. So within a, a, a circle, which is maybe 500 yards in diameter, at the maximum, you have uh, these uh, five different uh, salt types that would range at the youngest from half a million year old to 500 million years old. Boy, Alsace, huh? You know, with the soil types, it's like, whoa. <laughs> yes, yes. When you do this little walk that takes you what, 20 minutes, not even, it's a bit like if you take a stroll from Chablis down to Chateauneuf-du-Pape, crossing, you know, different limestone of Burgundy and then the granite of Beaujolais and ending up on the valley floor of Chateauneuf or, or Croz. So one of the first wines I became aware of from Zendhumrak when I first started following the wines in the late 90s was the Clo Windsbull. And it has a special label and it Mm -hmm. um, draws attention. But it's not a Grand Cru and it's not in Turkheim, which is where the winery is, and it's not where the old winery is. So why do you think, I mean, what is special about the Clo Windsbull that has made it stand out? Well, it was special enough for my father, just like for the Rangan. He tried for years to buy this vineyard and was eventually able to do it in 1987. But he was, uh, you know, talking to the owners for a long time before. Vinsbull, I like also history of our region because what we are today is defined by what we were in the past in a certain way. And uh, the Clos Vinsbull, I'm so lucky because uh, just a few months ago, I find a book written by another wine grower, of uh, the Lambert uh, in 1912 uh, on 30 pages uh, narrating the whole story of the Vinsbull. And the Vinsbull was, like Tan, was an imperial property until 1648. And it was actually a hunting lodge of the Habsburg family. The whole estate of the Vinsbull was hundreds of acres in total, including, you know, forest, field, vineyards, housing, farm, animals, and all that. I couldn't find any direct link to what grape variety and style of wine they were doing then. It was more like a general historical description of the, the place. Uh, 1648 is the Westphalie Treaty. That's when Louis XIV invaded Alsace, made Alsace part of France, created some conflicts with his eastern uh, neighbors. But at the time, Alsace was, a, and, and still today in a certain way, a natural uh, border to whatever country would own Alsace by the Vosges Mountain and the Rhine River. And in 1648, the the whole estate became property of the French king. At the French Revolution in 1789, these goods were stolen from the nobles and distributed to family. And uh, it's almost kind of the same family that owned the Vinsbühl since that time until we bought the vineyard in 1987. Of course, it went through different branches and all that, but basically with almost the same lineage. And the first description of wine, like precisely, I had goes back to 1760, and they speak about Tokai. <laughs> um, so it's, I'm happy because Pinot Gris is one of the most important grapes we have in this vineyard, so without knowing it, we're doing the same thing as it was done like over 200 years uh, ago. Why is it special? I think it's a combination of the location, the climate it has, close to the forest, higher up. Probably a difficult place to work in the past because it's a very uh, late ripening place. And you need to really understand the place and know when to harvest and do the right job in the vineyard, not to fear unripeness in the grapes, you see. Once you know what to do, 
that extending long growing season adds personality, character, and finesse uh, to the wine. That's what exactly what the Vinsbul is all about. Very different from the Rangen that we spoke before, you know, the volcanic uh, vineyard. Uh, the vineyard for me uh, of Vinsbul is a delicacy, high acid, elegance, longevity, but also a great microclimate. It's also a vineyard which ha is very isolated. Uh, it looks like it's part of the rest of uh, Alsace, but in fact, 90% of the, the Vinsbul is surrounded by fields, forest, animals, farm, and all that, a road. And uh, the nearest other vineyard uh, is only touching the Vinsbul on a very, very small uh, distance. So it's, it's a bit of an autarcic vineyard with its own little organization and, and life. Tremendous historical reference also there. You say it's not classified Grand Cru. I don't want to go back into the politics of I mean, uh, you know, the Grand Cru in, in Alsace. Let's say that, uh, and still today, it can be a problem to classify into an AUC uh, or to have a, a recognition of a vineyard in France. It's much, much, much easier if you are a group of wine growers. It's not that multiple wine growers speak louder than one person, but in the doctrine, if you can say that, of the INAO, the fact that multiple people produce the same thing, it shows that that one thing is what you should do. If in a vineyard you have 10 wine growers and all the 10 do something completely different, it in some way shows that people don't know what to do and don't know exactly what is the best that this place is capable to do. So um, uh, the fact that we, the previous owner was alone in the vineyard and that we are today alone is probably handicapped for that. If the vineyard would be spread amongst five different owners, it'd probably be easier to obtain some kind of classification. And also, at the time the Grand Cru were classified, uh, the Vinsbul was cultivated by someone who was selling the grapes to the local co-op. At a time where a lot of cooperatives didn't really start to market uh, Grand Cru wines. Today, it's completely different. They do it, and they're great supporters of that uh, philosophy. It wasn't the case back in the 70s and uh, 80s. The previous owner of the Vinsbul died in 1973, and the widower, uh, still alive, uh, our neighbor, uh, delightful elderly person, uh, was not really looking or didn't know exactly what to do. So it's one of these vineyards. There are other ones like that in Alsace that didn't class be classified the Grand Cru. Uh, you're probably aware that in the near future, in the next few years, we, we just started a classification of Premier Cru. The philosophy of um, the selecting committee at INAO has slightly changed. So being alone is not necessarily the biggest handicap. They look much more, and rightly so, on the quality of the wine, the history of the place, the usage. Uh, is the wine recognized as great by the peers and the customers? You know, Is it sold more expensively than the generic wine from Alsace, for example? It's also uh, a criteria. So let's hope that at least we reach that status. So I thought you summarized quite well some of the key things or projects that your father was involved in. Mm -hmm. For me, when I think of your winemaking, what I think of as important is the presence of tannins and white wine. A long period of time on the lees, and particularly the gross lees, not just the fine lees. Yes. And then an approach to pressing that varies with the heat of the vintage. And I'm wondering if uh, you might expand on any of those or point out for me what I may be missing in that lineup. I think pretty much on what you've just mentioned, we know today what to do. In French, we say le mieux est l'ennemi du bien. It means that the best is sometimes the enemy of the good. Uh, going too far in a certain direction and it's, it's great to have more extraction to make better wines. But to over-extract, you go into other uh, problems, you see. So having worked now for 30 years, whole cluster, and did a lot of uh, studies and comparative experiments and all that, we kind of know now for every vineyard, every grape variety, every ripeness level, every acidity level, every quality of physiological ripeness exactly, uh, how to extract the grapes, how long we should press it, 
should we do short or harder pressing, long, very uh, gentle? Should we space more every rotation of the grapes or not? I think technically we, we understand what we do. Same thing with temperature control. We know at what temperature a wine should uh, be maintained at and for how long before letting it go do what it wants. Leaf contact is probably the one thing that we still need to explore more because uh, the climate has changed, which means that you probably want in some cases to see the wine drier than sweet. When you work with uh, wild yeasts, you don't feed the yeast with you know, uh, nitrogen, uh, oxygen, uh, vitamins, and all these kind of life support uh, things you have for the yeast. So knowing exactly what type of sediments and how much we want to keep in the wine, what the turbidity of the must should be at the start of the fermentation, depending on how I want the wine to finish, dry or not, that's something we still have to look into it. And we are currently doing every year many experiments on that. I believe you, you don't need to have any enological help to make the wines. You just need to find out uh, what to do, which is a bit more complicated than just buying the product and putting too much into the wine. But with what nature gives us, we have all the necessary uh, ingredients to have the possibility to have a wine you know, drier, sweeter or something like that regardless of the ripeness level, of course, and the acidity uh, of the wine. So that's something we're still um, exploring quite a lot. Um, there's not much thing that can change today, honestly, into, into winemaking. What about your approach to reduction? I like a little reduction in wines. Like some friends I have in the wine business, they call it a complex reduction versus uh, a stinky wine. <laughs> uh, I... Definitely much more prefer a wine to be slightly reductive than slightly too oxidative when it's young because of this reduction, it's easy to get rid of. Uh, you decant the wine, put in a carafe, open it a bit earlier, or just wait until the wine is good to drink, maybe five years, ten years later. You know, a great wines take time to be uh, more interesting. It, it needs to go through some, you know, chemical transformation in, in the bottle. So I'm, uh, and probably also I got used to the fact that as most of our wines spend their entire life on the gross leaves to have that little, you know, leaves effect on the taste of the wine. You get used to it, you know. Of course, the limit is, I don't mind if a wine is slightly reductive on the nose, but it should not be on the palate. If the palate is too stinky, then it becomes uh, a fault. And in many cases, it might not go away even with very, very long aeration. It's also, uh, if someone works with gross leaves, it's a, it's a great way to save a little bit of sulfites, you know, make the wines more digestible, and also allow the wine to extract from the leaves and to go to a certain decomposition. That's also something probably that we still have to work on to understand exactly. Uh, everybody knows wine is not a stable product. In biochemistry, wine should not exist in nature. Uh, you have any, any carbohydrates, uh, especially liquid, in a liquid form in nature, it ends up in an acid at the end of the, uh, the Krebs cycle. And in case of wine, most of the time it would be vinegar, acetic acid. So we don't want to drink acid uh, or vinegar. So we don't also want to use hard techniques to stabilize the wine because it takes off a lot of its flavor. So finding the right balance to allow the wine to stay stable without uh, using hard techniques, that can be a, a real challenge. On the other hand, for me, a wine which is made too quickly using fast uh, enological tools, you know, fast fermentation, early bottling, no lease contact and all that, will probably more express the organic quality of the juice. You know, the fruit, the sugar, the acids and all that, the alcohol. The more a wine develops and is aged, especially on leaves, and starts to decompose, the more it mineralizes. Mineralization is, in fact, the equivalent of the wine kind of falling apart. But it becomes more and more interesting on an intellectual point of view and on a complex uh, point of view. When, when you start with fruit juice, just the fermentation is already a mineralization process. 
because you eliminate some carbon through the fermentation, so you increase the mineral content of the liquid by taking out some CO2 of the wine. Further, as you let the wine decompose a little bit, you get closer and closer to the minerals. Uh, imagine that you wait 100 years and, nothing, and you do nothing, you end up with a heap of minerals on the bottom of your cask and everything else is evaporated. We don't want that, of course. But I think it's interesting to learn where you are in the right middle, where you still have a lot of quality from the organic part of the wine, but enough of the mineral part of the wine to create a very interesting, complex, harmonious balance between the two. So I'm not saying that all of a sudden I'm going to bottle the wine completely oxidized and completely disjointed. You know, that is going too far and, and, and way too far. But uh, bottling others has been probably for many years uh, bottling the wine too early, more on the organic side with too much varietal characteristics and not enough varietal expression on the wine. That's why in the last uh, 10, 15 years, we've been extended our lease contact and delayed our bottling time to allow a little bit of that uh, to happen. The trick is not to end up with wine which are, have fallen apart or start to develop other problems like you know, volatile acidity and things like that. Over time, Olivier Humbresh has tried to get closer to the minerals. Thank you very much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you. Olivier Humbresh of Zin Humbresh in Alsace in France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.